Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Listen to those living the experience. On this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Hannah Sawyer. Hannah is a queer, disabled writer born and living in the Midwest. Her work explores the representation of othered bodies and how the arts, in particular storytelling, can be beautiful acts of survival, resistance, and community building. She is the founder of This Body is Worthy, a project aimed at celebrating bodies outside of mainstream societal ideals and words of reclamation, a space for disabled writers. Links to Hannah's website and This Body is Worthy can be found in the show description. Hannah and I discuss her journey and early interest in writing and advocacy. We explore topics of genre, genre bending, and the importance of inclusivity and human-centered design. Hannah was generous and patient with me as we explored her approach to creativity and writing. I appreciated Hannah's advice on creativity and how we must honor one's creative needs. I also appreciated her insight into the importance of listening to those living the experience. Too often, our mental models and assumptions get in the way of recognizing the human and the humanity in others. Famed system dynamic researcher Jay Forrester said, we all have mental models. And as George Bach said, all models are wrong. Some are useful. Our models are wrong in that they're imperfect, but they can become better and more useful if we're open to continuous learning. It was an honor having Hannah join me on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Um, my name is Hannah Sawyer, and I am a writer um, from the Midwest. I grew up in Iowa. I got my undergraduate from the University of Iowa, um, and then I just recently finished my MFA in creative writing from the University of Kansas. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what else specifically, I guess you would want to know. Oh, that no, that's great. That's a good enough start right there. So uh, out of curiosity, what was your, your undergraduate major? Um, English and journalism. All right. And, and what made you want to be a writer? Um, that's such a good question and one I've gotten asked multiple times and I'm not entirely sure if there's you know one specific reason that I can think of necessarily um but I think if I were to trace sort of you know my journey into writing when I was really little I think I was in kindergarten um in my hometown we had 
sort of an area that had these three really old trees. I think they maybe were maybe over a hundred years old, maybe not that old, but they were very old. And um, they were going to be removed. And I was very upset by that. Um, and so, you know, and I, again, I was in kindergarten, I think I was probably five years old. And I wrote a letter to the editor um, with my mom's help and we submitted it and it got published. And as far as I know, the trees are still around today, which is very, you know, exciting. And I think was sort of my first taste of like, oh, my writing can actually do things and um, change not only how people think, but how people act. And I think the way that we, you know, engage with each other and with our world and whatnot. Um, and then when I was a little bit older, I think in middle school and high school, I started realizing that there was such a huge lack of stories. And, you know, I, I was a reader from when I was really little. I loved words. I loved stories. Um, but I think probably, you know, around that time that most people start to sort of develop a self-awareness and an understanding of their own self and their own identity. Around that time, I really started to realize that there was such a huge lack of stories with characters that were like myself, meaning characters um, that were visibly disabled. And that was something that really, I think, was a catalyst for myself in wanting to um, pursue my writing further. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those you know, like, like you probably hear artists and writers say, it's something that you just have to do. If it's something that you do, you just have to keep doing it. You don't really have a choice not to. So. Thank you. And, and uh, so you're, and I, I apologize. You're just wrapping up your MFA. Is that what you, or, or are, you, are you done with the MFA program? I just finished. Um, I graduated in May. So congratulations. Thank you. What was what was the focus of the MFA program? Um, it was creative writing, but my focus primarily was creative nonfiction, sort of melded with poetry. Um, and my thesis, which is my first book manuscript that will Hopefully, um, I'm actually this week signing with a lit agent, which is really exciting. Um, but so, yeah, so let me back up. So hopefully that book will someday be, you know, a book that you can get on the shelves. And um, although it is creative nonfiction, a lot of my work and that collection specifically um, really does hinge on genre bending and sort of questioning form. Um, well, questioning the, I guess, strict constraints and strict boundaries of form, which I feel is very tied um, to, I don't know, like how we categorize people 
and try to fit them into different boxes. And it feels very inherently tied to a lot of the content that I explore as um, a woman with a disability. Thank you. And I'd love to dig into, I, I have some, some notes here of some of the other, some of the, the other projects and things that you've worked on. So if you don't mind, I'd just love to kind of like sure. dig in and talk about those experiences and, and your point of view on those. One, I just wanted to, to recognize and let the audience know, congrats, congratulations to you. Uh, you had recently had an outright chat book uh, that award yes. that you won. Do you, uh, and that was for creative nonfiction. Do you mind talking yes. about that project? Sure. Um, so yeah, the outright chat book competition is held with, I might get the name wrong. I think it's called the DC center. It's somewhere in Washington, DC and it's um, a writing center that works to recognize um, LGBTQ writers. And that chat book is a collection of three essays um, that are also in my manuscript, in the full manuscript. Um, and yeah, so, so a lot of the full manuscript um, is exploring my experience as a queer disabled woman um, through the lens of a surgery that I had when I was eight years old. Um, and, and sort of how that impacted my perspectives on, um, self and on bodily autonomy and on consent, um, and relationships and, you know, all the different ways that I continue to navigate the world. Um, and then also, you know, I think that's sort of the initial framework of my text, but then, you know, what was it now? Two years ago, a year and a half ago, this really fun thing called the COVID-19 pandemic happened. And that really took over a lot of my writing because um, a lot of those themes were still really, are still really present in how I am making sense of the world and living in the world. Um, and so I think that the pandemic sort of became another framework, I guess, through which to explore those ideas. And so a lot of that is explored in the chat book. It's just, you know, three essays versus, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15. Thank you. I uh, want to talk a little bit about, yeah, the, the pandemic in, uh, as you were writing through that and processing that and, and we're, we're still in it, right? I mean, it, it, yeah, uh, what, what were some of your, your, your takeaways or insights for you both maybe individually, but also for us generally as, as a society? Um, Hmm. I, I don't know. That's kind of a hard question, but I guess, um, yeah, I mean, as a writer, I was writing so much 
I, I don't know. I think of it, I definitely, you know, I don't think of like pre-pandemic and post-pandemic because that's just a false dichotomy. Um, for me, it's been more of like pre-vaccine and post-vaccine. So before I was able to get vaccinated and then after. Um, and during the time before I was able to get vaccinated, I was doing so much writing and so much processing of that. Um and in many ways, I think that was really good because I'm able to go back and see the specific insights and thoughts and feelings um, of that time. So I guess that's one thing. Um, but, you know, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess to answer that question, not related to me being a writer, um, I had never, up until that point, I had never experienced the explicit disregard of life, specifically of high-risk individuals' lives, um, up until that moment. And I, I sort of always knew that you know, there was a general disregard of disabled life in our society, but it was never something because, you know, various um, places of privilege that I come from, I had never been face to face with it until that moment. And um, on the flip side, it was also the first time that I really learned the, um, importance and value of my community of fellow disability fellow people with disabilities um so i don't know it was almost like again this pre-vaccine not pre-pandemic but yeah. i feel like a lot of it was i myself and so many other people who are high risk were sort of put into this pressure cooker where everything was you know, so much more intense um, because, well, <laughs> for so many reasons, but I think, you know, because our lives were so much more at risk at that point. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about the pressure as well. That, that was one yeah. word that I was thinking of too. And I feel like in general, humans, when confronted with pressure, we and sometimes I try to say this less judgmentally. We 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 revert back to old habits. Oh, it's true. Which usually are bad mm -hmm. habits, right? And so, like, and so it just it really struck me too when you said kind of that 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 disregard that that this you know a community might have for for disabled lives. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One of one uh, of the other projects that that. You have here. Uh, there's a bunch that I want to dig into. But one one of the things I, I was fascinated with was in 2016, you wrote about uh, kind of Iowa schools basically not not uh, really doing well from a ADA perspective, mm -hmm. and that was able to to generate a lot of awareness and drive action. Do you mind talking about that at all? Sure. Um, so that was while I was in undergrad at the University of Iowa and I was um, working on my journalism degree 
And I was at that point working for Iowa Watch, um, the Center for Public Affairs Journalism. And they focused specifically on investigative journalism. Um, and that was the project that I was interested in doing. And, you know, I can't really remember what started that. Um, I, I don't remember if there was a specific school district that I was looking into and realized, you know, this isn't up to code. Um, in my own personal life prior to starting undergrad, when I was in high school, our um, elevator at our high school was not up to ADA, ADA code, but had legally been grandfathered in because that part of the high school had been built um, prior to the signing of the ADA. And then no part of that specific part of the high school had been renovated since then. And so they were able to get away with having you know, an elevator that barely worked. Um, and that was another one of those instances where I really realized how much my writing could do because I, when I was a sophomore in high school, I joined our newspaper staff and that was the first piece I wrote was a really fiery opinion um, article about, you know, how, why is it that our school districts can afford um, a new, you know, billboard scoreboard in our in our football stadium but cannot afford a new elevator and then within a year we had a new elevator and i think partially you know i think people to some extent like i don't know how much of the change that came about there was you know really motivated by people wanting to make change and people you know, just maybe being scared of like what would happen if if they didn't, but whatever, we had a new elevator. Um, and so it's possible that maybe that is what spurred my initial question into how many school districts um, are actually up to code. And that was the project that I did. And I gathered reports um, and I, I don't remember exactly what the name of the reports were, but essentially, you know, some federal commission investigates um, school districts, like however many school districts in a state per year and make sure that they're up to code with the ADA. And so I gathered all those reports because they're all public knowledge. Um, and then I analyzed them and I compared everything. And then um, I also spoke with an individual whose family, my family knows, um, who lives in a rural town in Iowa, who dealt with a lot of inaccessibility in his school district as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, the data showed that the majority of Iowa school districts were not compliant with the ADA. Um, yeah, so, you know, I don't know if, 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 if anything has changed since then or whatnot, but yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I, um, so my, my day job is really in design and innovation. And I know one of the things that I've found interesting over time is, um, 
you know, a lot of times it almost feels from a business perspective, if we're, if we're, we're, we're doing something to enable for some type of disability that that feels extra other or costly. Oh, yes. And yet when we, we actually do that, it tends to make it easier and more accessible for everybody. And, yes. and so like good, good universal design universal is actually, design, absolutely. Right, is, is good for everybody. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I'm just curious from your your perspective because it's easy for me to just say that but from your perspective why is universal design so so important for people to to consider Um well I think exactly what you said it benef- it truly does benefit everyone um but also I don't know I'm always hesitant like on the one hand it shouldn't have to benefit everyone for it to be implemented, you know, like if it's going to allow one person who has specific needs to access something that they have a right to access, then it should be implemented. But of course, it does, in fact, um, benefit everyone, you know, whether that's people who are elderly or um, people with you know, strollers for kids or whatever, it, it, it benefits everyone. And I also think a lot of that is tied to this general disconnect, again, that our culture has of, you know, people with disabilities over here in one box, and then everybody else over in, in another box. And we don't really see it as a spectrum or something that can happen to anybody at any time. And we also don't connect it to our elderly population. Like there's generally not an understanding that, you know, when you become older, you do become disabled unless, you know, you die unexpectedly, most likely you're going to become disabled. And I think that's something that um, people don't understand as well. And so that, again, helps to enable design that doesn't benefit everybody and doesn't benefit people with needs that are outside of maybe a very slim um, idea of, you know, the quote unquote normal person. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I I know from an urban design perspective too, I'm always interested in when I've seen uh, some articles, right, that a lot of things that we design in urban settings are actually more that it's like anti-design. They're there to prevent certain mm. behaviors, right? Maybe we don't want a homeless person sleeping on a bench right. so, or yeah. we don't want pigeons landing here. Right. And like mm-hmm. wondering if, if we took a different frame, like how do, how do we enable the things that we want, including, you know, compassion for a, a spectrum of folks, like you said, rather than, you know, kind of disabled in one box, Right. Quote, unquote, normal in another box. But what what would that look like? Right. And I, that that I'm always curious on how we how we might transform kind of living spaces for folks with a more compassionate lens for what we want to enable rather than what we're trying to prevent. Yeah. So uh, some of the other things that you're working on uh, and. I'll turn this part now into like choose your own adventure, which which you might want to talk about first. But I was just really fascinated in some of the other projects that you're you're working on. Uh, this body is worthy, uh, and also the editing of the ending hasn't happened yet. Is there either one of those that you want to address first? 
Sure. Um, I can talk about this body is worthy first, because that was what happened first. Um, So that was a project that I started in 2017, um, and it it has gone through many phases. So it started simply as um, a photo shoot that I did, again, while I was still living in Iowa City. Um, And with that, that photo shoot was done with the photographer, very skilled photographer, Mary Mathis, who has gone on to um, freelance and work for many publications, including the New York Times. And um, yeah, so it, it started simply as her coming to my apartment one day and um, me writing the phrase, this body is worthy across various parts of my body that I was in some way, shape or form self-conscious of. Um, and then she took photos of that. From there, we sort of expanded it to community art workshops, which was really great. Um, We were both still in Iowa City at this time. And so we invited anybody in the community to come and write a phrase of their choice on their body and then have their photo taken and then sort of write a little statement to go along with that. I did two of those workshops. So I did one with Mary before she moved away. And then I did one with another photographer, Katina Zems. Um, And then I moved away to Kansas and started grad school and simply did not have, you know, the time or the energy to organize big community workshops anymore. Um, And I started to think of other forms that project could take. Um, and I decided I wanted to try selling t-shirts with the phrase on it, this body is worthy and have all of the proceeds go to various, um, organizations or projects led for and by people with disabilities. So that was the next iteration. And then from there, I wanted it to become, I wanted to do that same thing of raising money for um, organizations or projects that were led completely by and completely for disabled people, but I wanted it to also be a platform to uplift disabled artists. So that is, that's where it currently is. Um, We sell artwork that is um, all by artists with disabilities and all of the money goes to various organizations or projects. Um, Although we did recently have our first virtual workshop, and I think that's something that we might um, branch out into as well. How did the workshop go? It went really well. We did a screening of, um, there's this really great disability justice-based performance collective called Sins Invalid. And they incubate um, performance artists who are primarily queer people of color who are also disabled. Um, And so they have a 30 minute film. And so we screened that as a group and then we did like art and writing prompts from that. So it was really neat. Oh, that's great. Uh, Yeah, and then did you wanna talk about the ending hasn't happened yet? Sure, Um, so the ending hasn't happened yet. 
hopefully will be coming out in December, hopefully before the holidays. Um, but I've heard that there's sort of a huge publication, not publications, publishing and printing snafu going on right now. And so there's a lot of shortage of workers and shortage of papers. So we're not really sure. Hopefully it will come out before the holidays, but um, that is a an anthology of poetry and prose poetry by um, writers who are disabled, chronically ill, or neurodivergent. And um, yeah, it's something I've been working on since early this summer. Um, and yeah, it's very exciting. It has a lot of really great work in it. So I'm excited for it to come out. Well, congratulations. Yeah, hopefully Thank all of the supply chain related elements can uh, yeah. at least dissipate a bit to to hit the, the holiday goal. Want, want to ask you, um, then, as as we've been talking about kind of a, a awareness of uh, and support for for those with disabilities, as, through your writing and activism, if there were other things that you might share with the audience in in general, like how to be maybe better allies, and sometimes that might even be a loaded term, but even just generating awareness so there isn't this necessarily sense of other. What what might you share with listeners? Um, I think maybe the biggest one related specifically to writing and arts activism is, well, uh, I guess related to everyday life as well, but just to listen to those who are living the experience. Um, and that probably, I don't, I in no way want to speak for other marginalized groups, but that probably goes for every marginalized group out there to listen to them and, and trust our voices, you know, over maybe your own biases or your own um, perspectives. Um, and I don't know, I think that in general, it's a learning process and it's a learning experience. And, and what I'll, I'll specify and clarify that it's a learning process of unlearning the harmful beliefs and perceptions that I think everybody has grown up with. Um, and I think that, you know, it's important to acknowledge that everybody makes mistakes, but then we have to be willing to learn from those mistakes when it has to deal with um, harm and violence towards various people. So that's what I would say. Thank you. Uh, thinking about your your writing process, I'm always interested when I talk to creatives and craftspeople about their process. Um, and do you do you have standard times of the the day that you like? Is there a pattern or rhythm, or is it more as things grab you? No pattern or rhythm. <laughs> um, the only thing I would say, well, it's two things. So I've been keeping a semi-daily journal since I started college, um, although I journaled a little bit less infrequently or less frequently prior to then. Um, but since I started undergrad, so eight, a little over eight years ago, I've tried to keep a daily journal. 
um, which hasn't always, it certainly has not always, you know, been daily by any means. But what I have found, and this was something that I found um, or that I came to realize in the past year, is that a lot of what I've written in the daily journal actually ends up being good material, good usable material for creative works that I'm putting together. And that sort of underscored the importance of continuing to do that. Um, and then the other thing, which I think is really important, and I've been speaking about this a lot lately with people who've asked me, is just becoming more self-aware of when you have that creative urge and then actually following through on it. Because, you know, sometimes I'll think of a line that I want to write down, but then I won't write it down. And then it's lost, essentially, you know, and that idea is essentially lost. But I think that when I have followed through with it, when I really recognize, okay, this is something that I want to, to write down, and then I do write it down, and then I let it marinate and um, follow through on it, then it seems like those instances happen more often. And so it's generally an all around good thing. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit more about that. So you're it just, are you making sure that you're present, that when an idea comes to, to pause and write it down, that it doesn't get lost to like general, my, my mental, my mental model for me. So I'm just project, projecting is sometimes sure. what happens is I feel like, I feel like they're, uh, it would be others to judge, but you know, I think, oh, that's a brilliant idea. I need to, but then I don't, I don't write it down or, or I don't track yeah. it. And, and then there, there's no chance of that even getting cultivated, right? Mm -hmm. Who knows it was brilliant, but I don't even get to work the idea anymore because it's just kind of in the ether. Uh, is it, is it part, part of that just a matter of make sure you you're capturing and then reflecting on that idea later? I think so. Um, there is a writer, and I, I have, I do not know who this was. Um, I could find it and send the name to you later. But some writer wrote once about her writing. She's a poet, and she said something about how poems, like lines, lines to poems, would come to her almost out of the sky, and she would have to grab them before they flew away. And um, I think it's sort of like that. I mean, I know that sounds, you know, sort of uh, not very grounded, but I, mean, yeah. I think there's some truth to it. And I think it is exactly what you were saying. For me, at least, it's like the more I become aware of when I'm having an idea that I want to write down and then when I actually follow through on it, then the better I, the better I become at doing that and so then i have more ideas and more things to write down um and i don't know i just feel more fulfilled creatively you know which is really important right right by by chance have you read jeff Tweedy's how to write one song no, but I will put it on my list. It, for me, it's a, just a, kind of a, a wonderful. It's just he's examining his own creative process and how he how he tends to to write and try to capture ideas. Um, and for, on the on the lyric side, 
too. There was a lot of um, where he'll just try to do word association, right? Like, and, oh, yes. and then, and then connect and just see what those might open up. But the, the main thing I took away from that, it feels similar to maybe like a morning pages ritual, but actually just blocking some sacred time to do that, whether, whether that's on, on a, a more rigorous calendar clock perspective, or right. just making sure that you do take time in the day. I think maybe, maybe in the, in, in the same vein as mindfulness or meditation mm-hmm. is just that you do take a few minutes to let that part of the creative brain exercise itself. Cause I'm curious from your perspective, my belief is that it, it is the a mindset to be cultivated and it, it atrophies if it doesn't get worked and it can expand, um, as you develop, but I, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts about kind of a creative mindset. I think that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when you were saying that, something that came to mind also, which I think is pretty integral to how I understand my creative process and creative mindset um, has been a realization and understanding that writing and creating in general is more than just what happens when say the pen meets the page or it's more than just what happens when you know you're typing something out on your keyboard or you're you know um painting something on a canvas a lot of it i think is internal and you know the thoughts that you're thinking out and figuring out in your mind Um, And so, yes, I think it is, it's almost like you sort of have to give yourself permission to do that and to indulge in that. Um, And yeah, and I don't know. I mean, for me, it's been that process of becoming aware and then following through. And then the more I've done that, the easier it's become to continue to do that. So I suppose that is in track with what you said about cultivating that mindset. Thank you. And kind of related to this, one of the things I always like to talk to creatives and craftspeople about too, is the notion of feeling uh, stuck. And, and if, and, and you could say, Matt, I'm a pro. I, I never, I'm never stuck, but I'm kind of curious if you ever feel stuck uh, yeah. and then what your, your personal techniques are to get unstuck. Yes. Um, well, definitely. And I think that for me, um, it's a unique, it's a careful balance because I guess I don't, I really don't believe in the whole sitting down in front of your computer or with your notebook for the same amount of time at the same time of day, every day. Um, That doesn't work for me. And I don't think, I think that there's a lot of people who that doesn't work with, doesn't work for. And I honestly think that that can make you, at least with me, that can make me feel more stuck because there's that feeling of like having to do it and then you're forcing it out and it's just not working. Um, And 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that that sort of comes back to realizing and understanding and accepting that writing is so much more than the actual words on the page. Um, And as far as getting unstuck, that's kind of tough. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I think just not forcing not trying to force something um which of course isn't always possible if you're you know on a specific deadline or or if you're doing an assignment that is not maybe what is actually fulfilling you but you still need to get done um but then also i don't know also things that fulfill your creative process like maybe reading um or for me being outside um various things like that thanks yeah thinking about your journalism background right too mm-hmm. is yeah lots lots of deadline driven components yes. right so uh how how would you address that if you if if you you were feeling like something wasn't coming together in in my mind it's just you got to do you got to get something out there but i'm not quite sure what that what that looks like or feels like. So I'm kind of curious uh, on the journalism side of getting getting words to, to paper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because in my mind, my journalistic writing and my creative writing are two very distinctly different things. And um, yeah, and, and so I guess my back to my idea of not trying to not force something um that i don't think that really applies for you know any sort of journalistic writing that unfortunately you know is it's just different i mean it just is and so yeah i mean i think that also you know is related to are you writing for your job? Is it something that you're doing and getting paid for? Um, and, or, you know, is it something that is more creative and maybe hopefully you'll get paid for it too, but, um, it's maybe a different structure. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. They're, they're just so different in my mind. Right. Yeah. And as, as, as you were talking through that too, it made me think of uh, one of the things that I've tried to encourage my, my kids with some of their artistic pursuits with, which uh, for my daughter includes music, writing and painting. And for my, my son, it's, it's design and, and music. And one of the, one of the things I'm trying to get them comfortable with is, and I wish I could remember where I heard it because it, it it's not anything I I made up, but I, I love the idea that you know can, one one of the things with art is to break the rules, but when you're stuck, the rules help get you through. Right, and mm. so sometimes I think about writing is, yeah, we do know like a general essay can have this type of structure. So if we're stuck, just go back to that to get right. the job. Or for you know if you want a pop song, one four five chord structure is pretty yeah pretty. So if you're stuck, you can go with that. Uh, but you know, when you're feeling, feeling freedom, more creative, you, you know, 
actually try to avoid that or use that as a constraint, right. To drive right. your creativity. And, and so it's that, that's just, I was kind of curious too, with that creative versus journalism about like, what are the rules and structure that sometimes can enable productivity might not be fulfilling to the, the creative spirit, but can sometimes get you true. unstuck. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also like, um, you know, to me, the thing that really separates creative writing and journalistic writing, and it's hard, but there's that idea of like being objective and fact-based versus you don't have to be objective. But it's so much more complicated than that because I really think that it's hard even for a journalist to be fully objective, you know? Um, and so maybe, I don't know, maybe there are, there are ways they overlap and they're not actually that distinct. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know, yeah. but it, it's, it's a, a complex thing, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I want to go back kind of to earlier in our conversation um, and, and feel, feel free to, to tell me uh, this is just not worth, worth your time. Uh, but I, I nerd out about genre stuff. Oh so, yes. Gosh, me too. I, so, I could definitely talk for a long time about this. So one, one of the things in genres that I'm, I'm really curious about for, for me. So um I, part of my part of my background when I started my undergrad, uh, I, I thought I was uh, one of the things I was interested in was being a filmmaker. And from stories, whether you know in literature or movies, I'm always and in music too. I'm interested in what starts to constitute a genre that that yes. that a group a multiple group of people can identify as a certain yeah. certain type. And then from a communication perspective, for me is also the notions of novelty and redundancy, right? That it's redundant enough to like keep the committed, so to speak, but it's novel enough that it's new. So it refreshes itself. And I always get interested in what components of, of a particular genre are, are enough to, for somebody to say, Oh, that's, that's this, but it's also that. So I'm just kind of curious on when you're, when you're looking at genre and how do we defy genre, but then how do we also acknowledge kind of an organizing principle of it? at the same time. I don't know if that's making sense, what I, what I was talking about. Um, I think a little bit, it, it makes me think, um, and I, I was trying to find the person, the name of this person who came up with this term um, while you were speaking, but I couldn't. Yeah. There's someone, I think they're, you know, like a lit theorist or something um, who said, genres are fuzzy sets. And the idea, is that, you know, if you visualize like a box, there's no actual lines that have made the box. It's just dots. And yeah. as you get further from the center, the dots become farther and farther away from one another. And so, you know, for something to be considered a specific genre, it has to meet some of those dots but it, it's not going to meet all of the dots um and i mean i think that's a bit related to what you were saying and i don't know to me it's interesting to think 
of genres beyond just categories of literature or categories of movies or music. Um, and to think of them as, you know, something that we, a framework, I guess, through which we can look at society and culture and people. Um, but I don't know if I have any specific, you know, grand takeaways from that. It is just something that I think is really fascinating and that I, I do think in my own work, the genre yeah. bending is really integral to my exploration of my identity as a queer disabled woman who perhaps doesn't feel like labels always make the most sense for me, you know? And so that's why working in different genres and consciously and deliberately um, sort of redefining genres is really important for what I'm doing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And yeah, thinking about, uh, you know, so right, just from what I'm hearing too, is, is two, two big kind of genre labels too, right? As you said, disabled and queer and what, and what yes. do the, what do those mean together as well? Right. right. Um, yeah. Cause I, and also part of my day job with design is a lot of information architecture, which is like trying to be like really strict about what attributes fit where, right. When we're trying to think about mm -hmm. taxonomies and um, which is, is, is good to help people discover certain information, but like from, from more of a humanistic perspective, those can be really damaging as well. Like what, For sure. what's in and what's out, what, what's considered whole or pure, right. For lack of better terms, but yeah. Uh, so uh, are there a particular element when you're doing the genre bending? Is there, do you, do you pick a particular uh, target and then say like, what, what does it look like if we redefine this or if we actually just remove that altogether? I'm just kind of curious on when you're doing genre bending, like what the, that process might look like in, in the background before you're bringing your art forward. Um, I think it, it comes about, maybe more less thought out than that, maybe just more organically. Um, the manuscript that I am working on putting into a book and out having that book be out in the world, there's a lot of dips into magical realism. Um, and that was very a very intentional way of representing, I think, how a traumatized individual makes sense of reality. And that's not a new, you know, literary trick at all. Um, but, but also then there are pieces, there are pieces throughout the text, throughout my manuscript that are told um, for example, there's there's one piece that is told from the point of view of the narrator, but the narrator is able-bodied and can walk. Um, and that piece is about leaving a town and moving to a different town and leaving a person um, and moving, you know, to different people. But it is really exploring how like 
how can you express grief if your body cannot emote grief in the culturally thought of ways of emoting grief, if that makes sense. Um, and, And so that idea and the need to have that be sort of a weird genre bent piece were not, you know, that didn't, I guess, consciously, explicitly come to me. Um, but it was just something that occurred as I was writing it and as I was exploring that idea. And and what I'm hearing too is like you said, it's organic and you're you're letting yourself yes. play with that idea and extend that without without the constraints of maybe a a a, a predetermined genre, right? That yes. Oh absolutely. Because I think any of the times I've tried like especially creative nonfiction, you know, and I came, I did my undergrad at the University of Iowa, where um, at least when I was there, genres were not mixed. I think that things have probably changed. Um, But genres, when I was there, and I guess, you know, the classes that I was taking, which this is not at all a critique by any means, but they are very distinct. They're very separate. Um, the nonfiction writing program at the University of Iowa is its own thing. It's not related. It's not together with the writer's workshop. Um, and I went into my MFA thinking I want to do creative nonfiction. And that is what I've done, but it is so much different. What my how I guess the place that my work has come to um, and the way that I write now and the way that I think makes the most sense for the ideas that I'm exploring and representing is so much different from um, what I thought creative nonfiction was when I began that process, if that makes sense. It does. I And thank you. Uh, Hannah, one of the the things I also like to cover with with guests is the notion of advice, and it tends to take. And, and again, we were just talking about genre, so it doesn't have to be either. It tends yes, to take. Yes. Uh, uh, sometimes it's the uh, from Austin Cleon, "Steal Like an Artist." It's uh, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Yeah. Or other times, it's maybe something that a mentor gave us when we were younger, but we maybe we were too cocky to really process it. I was curious on uh, if you had any advice, either good advice you've received or you wish you would have received earlier that you might share with, with our listeners. Um, I think I would go back to what I realized about my own creative process. Two things, which is that writing is so much more than just the pen hitting the page or um, the text hitting the blank Word document and allowing allowing yourself to see writing is more than that. Um, And then also working on becoming aware of when you have those creative ideas and creative urges. And maybe a part of that also, you know, is like when you have an idea not immediately dismissing it as something that doesn't have merit um, or or can't be turned into a story or um, an essay or a poem or whatever, you know? Um, and I think just 
honoring that and then continuing to work on that is really great um, because I think you're also like honoring your own creative needs and creative forces, which is really wonderful. And that's what's been the most helpful for me. So I don't know if that will be helpful for other people, but that is um, what I would say. I love it. And I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, before we go, is there anything that you thought we might cover today that we didn't didn't talk about? Um, I don't think so. This is quite lovely. Awesome. And I just, uh, for folks listening, I want to make sure that probably the easiest place to access uh, your work and projects is your, your website. Yes. And that it's hannahsawyer.com, but I, I want to make sure that I spell it properly. H-A-N-N-A-H. S-O-Y-E-R dot com. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. And thanks so much. I really appreciate it.